Hi, I'm Ted Zoller, and you're tuned into On the Heels of Innovation, a podcast powered by the Entrepreneur's Genome Project at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. How is it that some people are successful in pushing their ideas further and faster than the rest of the world? What characteristics do they share? Which skills did they work to hone? And what lessons have they uncovered through each step forward and back that can inspire you to accelerate your own ideas for a business or venture? This podcast will explore the perspectives, insights, and journeys of innovators and entrepreneurs who combine creative thinking and perseverance to go beyond the expected. On the Heels of Innovation is powered by the Entrepreneur's Genome Project, which is a research initiative that I lead with my students in the Entrepreneur's Lab class at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, revealing the DNA that makes up successful entrepreneurs. So welcome to On the Heels of Innovation, and uh, we're really fortunate today to have Doug Spate, one of my favorite entrepreneurs uh, and a UNC MBA alum from 2006. And I remember you in class, Doug. <laughs> you were always the entrepreneur, and I think it's kind of hardwired in your particular case. Yeah. Uh, you've been an entrepreneur basically your entire life. True. Um, would you mind unpacking for the audience kind of your story in your own words? Sure, sure, absolutely. And I actually wear the uh, the the badge of your student <laughs> with honor. Uh, I, I t- actually brag about that because of the relationship we were able to develop here in the MBA program uh, through your 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 class. So um, I'm appreciative for you and what you do for the university. So um, let's go back to. Uh, early 80s. Um, so growing up in Durham, uh, I grew up literally about six miles away from this campus, um, was always a Tar Heel fan. <laughs> and so good. Um, I grew up in Durham in a family of entrepreneurs. So we were three generations, I'm third generation entrepreneur, um, going all the way back to the early 30s in Durham. Wow. So my grandfather moved from Eastern North Carolina to Durham started his first business in 1936 and my grandfather and father had had some eight companies between them uh, so i'm still catching up with <laughs> with the two of them <laughs> you're not quite there yet. No, i'm not yet i'm not there yet i'm only on five i've got a few more to, to go uh, but i was always uh, working in and around their businesses so i grew up in that environment where um, they were constantly testing out new concepts and so give me a flavor of the kinds of things we're not we're not talking about you know rocket ships we're talking about things that people needed right absolutely and that was a beauty of um of durham in those days was that service businesses um, service-based businesses really set the foundation for them to try new things given what they learned so um my grandfather and father had everything from taxi cab companies to Auto service was the major one. In fact, it's still um, in operation some 80 years later. Wow. Um, we had um, oil delivery in partnership with uh, Keenan Oil, which really? again is another great family tie to in an entrepreneurial story. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we had property management, land development, um, real estate development. We had a number of, of companies in and around that space, HVAC. Um, my grandfather used to say anything with a motor is our business. So. There you go. <laughs> That's actually a great way to think about it. Mm-hmm. So you were uh, very much from a hands-on type of entrepreneurial history, mm-hmm. entrepreneurial family, mm-hmm. and you were brought up in that tradition. Exactly. So what would you do when you uh, you know grow up is <laughs> become an entrepreneur, right? Yeah. Well, actually, um, my wife reminds me to this day when we met in undergrad uh, and we went out on on dates. She said that I told her I'd never start 
a company because I grew up seeing the level of investment and um, the effort and all of the time away from family. I saw all of that. There's a, a downside. Kid. There's a huge downside. A lot of the, risk. The cost is high. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So I had told her in undergrad that I'd never start a company. And lo and behold, before I had graduated during my senior year, I had started <laughs> company number one. So <laughs> You were just sharing a little bit about what Durham was like. Mm -hmm. uh, you grew up in Durham, uh, multiple generations of entrepreneurs. Tell us a little bit about kind of what it was like to build a business, you know, uh, as part of the African-American community mm -hmm. in Durham. There was a great story in Durham uh, in developing kind of that uh, Black Wall Street. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Durham at the turn of the century was known as Black Wall Street largely because it had the highest density of African-American millionaires in the country. Wow. Yeah. Per capita, we had the most um, black millionaires in the city of Durham. It was an absolutely phenomenal environment. And that was largely because there was this uh, environment of cooperative economics. So you had large institutions on one end of the spectrum like North Carolina Mutual Life Insurance Company, one of the first and largest black insurance companies. You had MNF Bank or Mechanics and Farmers back in those days, which is still also still around. Um, you had a number of very large financial institutions that buttressed one end of the economy. Then you had a service layer that actually served the professional community that worked in those uh, companies, which is where my family typically operated. Um, and you also had um, almost a, a, a labor layer for the remainder of the city that worked in um, the tobacco mills and others. Um, so it was a really bustling economy. Would you call it an ecosystem? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so it before was a it was <laughs> ecosystem. Absolutely. Before ecosystem was even a term, um, it was absolutely that. What made it work? My father and I actually talk about this a fair amount. And he says that because of the segregated um, culture of the South during that time, there were very few places, very few service providers, very few businesses for black people to patronize. And so they spent the majority of their money in the black community. And so um, he shares this statistic with me that the, the churn in terms of um, how many times the dollar turned over in the black community at, at Black Wall Street in Durham, it was like 14 times. Wow. As compared to today where it's less than three. Let's go back to your story. Yeah, so I went to uh, to A and T originally for engineering. So I was a gearhead, obviously, growing up. My, sure. um, my father sponsored NASCAR um, race car teams, and so I was really into racing. And I wanted to go um, to engineering school originally to design race cars. <laughs> I was a big fan. Uh, but once I got to school, I realized that uh, my interest really was on the business application of technology. So I was a tech geek on one side. Uh, I'm a true Gemini, by the way. So a, te a tech geek on one side and uh, more interested in business and growth and expansion on one side, on the other. Sounds but, like you're channeling your dad a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Is that yeah. what was happening? That's exactly right. So that's a, really that's when all of the lessons that he taught me started to congeal, and I started to understand it. And we would come, I would come back from 
uh, fall break or spring break and talk to my father and sit down with my father and grandfather. They'd ask me questions about, you know, so what did you learn about managing a balance sheet? What did, <laughs> what did you learn about, you know, growing and scaling and investment capital? You know, they would ask me these questions and I didn't have answers for them because I was in engineering and wasn't exposed to it. So I actually um, changed majors so that I could get more exposure to business. Um, and then as a senior, actually, it's a great story of um, being able to recognize opportunity. After my junior year, I did an internship with Procter & Gamble, and I managed all of their engineering drawings for their big manufacturing plants. I had a classmate who did a similar function at uh, Philip Morris uh, during that same time. After we came back after the summer, we started comparing notes and saying, you know, what, what was your summer like? And we realized that you had these two Fortune 500, actually Fortune 100 companies at that time that um, had invested billions of dollars in these manufacturing plants with nobody to manage all of that engineering data except for two 22-year-old college students. So we realized that if Philip Morris and Procter & Gamble had that issue, then more companies probably had the exact same issue. So we actually started our first company, Core Services Incorporated, based on managing engineering data, CAD drawings and the like, and developing archival systems for them to keep up with their 15,000 drawings. And that became our first company. That wasn't a simple idea. It was a pretty uh, deep, uh, complex idea. Mm -hmm. And you know, as a matter of fact, it looks like your career has been about solving really complex problems Always. using science and engineering. Yep. So tell me how that career kind of unfolded. Most of my career has been across four different dimensions. Number one has been clearly technology and science. Um, I've always been a tech geek, always loved um, new technologies, and more importantly, had the skill to translate some of the benefits of those technologies in lay terms. So that translational um, aspect of it. The second thing is strategic partnerships. Because I started out working with Procter & Gamble and Philip Morris um, as a 22-year-old talking to CEOs and uh, presidents of these companies, um, I always continue to have some uh, connection to strategic partnerships with larger institutions um, and larger com companies and translating value to their bottom lines. Uh, the third thing I would say is making sure that um, I'm connecting new talent and nascent talent in uh, a number of different channels, whether they be university uh, communities or whether they're in the professional communities and incorporating them in what I'm doing. And so my, my life has been spread across those dimensions. So three elements, innovation, strategic partnerships, and talent. Absolutely. How many of the um, ideas that you've built as, entrepreneurial, as the entrepreneurial leader did you invent? Great question. Um, I have I have patents in additive manufacturing and 3D printing, uh, the industrial grade um, 3D printing. But that's not been your source of power. It hasn't. You've brought things together as an entrepreneur, haven't you? That's exactly. That's your right. secret sauce. Yeah, yeah. The um, as as one of my mentors says, it it's opportunity recognition. That's really where um, I'm 
been able to create opportunity for both me and my team members. Identifying innovation, finding strategic partnerships, and sourcing talent. That's exactly right. That's the Doug Spate formula. <laughs> That's right. Terrific. And you hone that in a lot of different settings. Uh, for instance, you were the director of the tech transfer operation for Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was after you had actually spent some time at A&T helping them develop their innovation ecosystem. Um, and then you ended up uh, spending some time on the funding side of the equation down in Charlotte with the uh, Inception Micro Angel Fund, running, running that angel operation. That's right. And then you came back to Durham. <laughs> That's correct. What brought you back after oh. having such a terrific career? Yeah. Uh, well, one, at the time I moved back to Durham, it was 2015, 2016. Um, I had a fintech company at the time that I had started while living in Tennessee had moved it originally to Charlotte, thinking, of course, that a fintech company needs Would want to, to be, be in Charlotte. <laughs> That's exactly right. Second largest financial center in the country, of course, that makes sense. But Charlotte's ecosystem was relatively nascent at that time. Just starting. Absolutely. And there were a number of people at uh, Packard Place and uh, who were pulling together the ecosystem as we were going through it. And mm -hmm. I realized that even though their efforts were valiant, um, Charlotte is still a corporate town mm -hmm. and had a little ways to go in terms of supporting tech startups. So I knew, of course, that Durham had a well-developed uh, ecosystem that expanded throughout the entire region. And they also had, I had relationships with Bull City Venture Partners and the folks at American Underground and others. So I relocated my company from Charlotte to Durham specifically to take advantage of those community effects. So that was a homecoming for you. Completely. And uh, Durham was a different place yes. than the one you left. <laughs> yes. Now, not only did you know there was a strong entrepreneurial ecosystem, but you, you had uh, you know, left maybe the moon and now ended up in Mars somewhere <laughs> totally different. Well put. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was day and night when I got back. Um, the ecosystem was completely on fire. Um, I think in the two years prior to my arrival, there had been like a billion dollars of exits in this region. So the, the region was really just unbelievable. Um, and I came in at the right time, uh, right during that stage of, of transition where it was really beginning to skyrocket. Right? And, and, and Durham um, did go through a pretty distressed uh, time after the tobacco industry kind of restructured. And uh, people would talk about Durham as kind of the Detroit of the South, and <laughs> it was a tough town. And now it's in a renaissance. It's one of the greatest uh, entrepreneurial renaissance stories and ecosystems that have been built. Um, you lived through that process. Yes. You saw the Durham as, it's, as, as the first generation ecosystem, very powerful, and then go through major distress and now reemerge. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about what it's like to have grown up in Durham and what that experience has been like to observe. Yeah, what's interesting is growing up, um, the tobacco industry was the top of the heap in, in, the, in Durham. It was the economic cornerstone of the city. Uh, as tobacco uh, was going through its <laughs> iterations um, in the 80s and as globalization was starting to take root and uh, many companies were moving operations to Mexico and other locations, uh, the economy of Durham bottomed out. And so you could drive downtown and see a number of buildings boarded up. Um, and that persisted until the early 2000s. I would say 2008, 
2009. American Tobacco, now the American Tobacco Complex, was really a derelict uh, industrial facility. Absolutely. And, and Mayor Bell uh, provided some support to bring the Goodman family into that story. And then it kind of took root. Absolutely. Um, how has that become kind of a catalyst, though? Because all this entrepreneurship is happening in, in Durham. And I got to tell you, I think a lot of it's driven out of Carolina, believe it or not. But <laughs> it it's is. located in Durham, which is uh, Duke's town. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, in fact, I'm not going to give Durham to Duke. Uh, Duke is Carolina's town. But um, there you go. Uh, uh, what, what was it about American underground and American tobacco that really started that? Renaissance. Great question. So when American Tobacco, it was about a million uh, square feet of, as you said, derelict space. Um, the SWAT team was using it for operations at the time. That's how bad it was. Um, I think there, there's a, a joke that uh, the American Tobacco team shares that they had, they spent about $1.2 million just in pigeon poop removal. That's, that's how bad this whole thing was. And once they re renovated the entire campus, they really wanted to uh, provide a spark of energy, right? Um, particularly for early, uh, early stage entrepreneurs and tech startup companies. So they carved out a space, it's actually in the basement of American Tobacco. Um, it was where the Christmas uh, decorations were stored and thus the name American Underground. Uh -huh. uh, and they carved it out um, and renovated it as a space for entrepreneurs to, uh, almost a self-contained ecosystem within the American Tobacco Campus. So you had a number of tech startups and a number of accelerators. You had uh, Chris Hively and Dave Neal um, with the uh, Startup Factory. You had a number of organizations, Bull City Venture Partners, all in the same space. And that was really the major catalyst that started to bring many more tech entrepreneurs for Durham. And within two years, they outgrew the space in American Tobacco, opened up a new location, um, outgrew that space within three years, opened up two more spaces, and it just continued from there. So Doug, uh, with your homecoming uh, to Durham, uh, you decided not only to move your company here, but then you decided to go all in and help the ecosystem by taking a role with uh, American Underground. Tell us a little bit about uh, what your thinking was there. Absolutely. So being a black founder, uh, locating in Durham, knowing some of the challenges now, at the time I was on my fourth startup, knowing some of the challenges that we experienced in the early stages of development, um, American Underground had made a commitment to support um, black entrepreneurs in particular, and they wanted to be the most diverse tech hub in the world. And that was an audacious uh, charge. That was an audacious, audacious vision that I immediately fell for. I love big visions. I love grand challenges. And so I first uh, started working with American Underground under the, under the auspices of entrepreneur in residence. And it was one of the most glorious periods I had spent. Um, I had so much fun interacting with um, Google, with other entrepreneurs around the country, understanding their challenges. And we partnered to try to figure out solutions and open the, um, open the, uh, the front door to our tech hubs to allow more uh, diversity in, in those spaces. And so that then funneled into uh, being asked to lead American Underground about two years later. It occurs to me this was kind of Black Wall Street 2.0. Exactly. And you were in the opportunity to actually lead that um, and build it. 
Um, what does it look like and how is it different than the original? That's a great question because that's exactly why um, what gets me up in the morning. That's what excites me about this region and this opportunity is to take what um, we now have in terms of a technological foundation and technological assets um, that can completely transform communities in a way that we hadn't seen before. And so I really am invested in this notion of Black Wall Street 2.0 by uh, creating pathways, new pathways for economic gain based upon incorporating new technologies. And so uh, a number of the programs we started have been aimed at um, underrepresented communities, Black, Latinx, LGBTQ, um, to get them more involved in the tech scene and also help them understand what tools are available to them now that can help them grow and scale. It's exciting. I think that you're seeing now kind of a leapfrog effect. Absolutely. Uh, and it's being driven out of diversity. You know, I'm seeing in the most uh, high-performance entrepreneurial ecosystems, they're highly diverse, they're highly global, they're highly um, focused on an authentic kind of a desire to bring open uh, opportunity open to everyone. Absolutely. And uh, that's something that was really your driving passion. In the space of diversity and inclusion, it's actually binary. Uh, you either believe that more diverse teams make better decisions or you don't. And most of the, the alternative group think. <laughs> that's exactly right. Um, but you look at the statistics of venture funded companies and you realize that, for instance, women um, women founders, companies that are headed by women founders produce a 30% uh, premium over their counterparts. Um, companies that are led by black women have an additional dividend on top of that. So um, you start to realize that we're missing a huge economic opportunity across this country by not investing in people of color, by not investing in women and LGBTQ members of the community. We're missing a huge opportunity. And that's what excites me is once you integrate all of those voices, all of those viewpoints, all of those perspectives, you have now a complete perspective on what your product or service is able to do for the customer base and your customer base expands exponentially. So Doug, now that you are back in the saddle as an entrepreneur here in Research Triangle in Durham, uh, you have two children, a, a, a boy and a girl. Yes. And uh, I'm guessing they're starting in a fundamentally different place than you did. <laughs> and that's been a big part of why you've done what you've done. You wanted to give them opportunity that you might not have had yourself and your father may not have had before uh, you. Absolutely. Um, how will it be for your son and daughter to grow up in this ecosystem? <laughs> What's that's different? A, that's a great question. Uh, so I have uh, my son just turned 18. My daughter uh, just turned 13 and they've grown up with technology their entire lives. They've seen me tinker with you know, additive manufacturing equipment all the way to coding software. They've seen the entire gamut. Um, so one of the things that'll be different for them is the pace with which they acquire new skills. Uh, Durham's a really unique place in that uh, there is no ethnic majority. So it's about 42% black, um, 42% white, and then in the teens in terms of uh, Latino population. And so uh, it's a really unique place to, to, to grow up in when you don't have an ethnic majority. But um, 
the composition of the city is changing at the exact same time um, with redevelopment and the like. Um, it's, not, it's unsure right now what the population will look like in 10 years. Um, so I think coming in during these transitions is an exciting period because you don't know what's next. Um, but you have this firm foundation of supporting underdogs and people that are really sort of gritty and inventive and um, really just, just hustle it out. And so my hope is that my kids will uh, will acquire that level of hustle and grit and, and inventiveness and continue that on. It sounds like the Spate family tradition uh, <laughs> because you're going back to the basics and you know from your, your grandfather, your father, yourself, now your children, it's very exciting to see that um, your children are going to be growing up where opportunities recognized and they will have those opportunities uh, to move forward. So I'm really bullish about our region. I'm bullish about the future of uh, the next generation. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to go back just for a moment uh, to talk about kind of your secret sauce. Uh, we clarified earlier that you, you're first an innovator, that you leverage strategic partnerships and you find talent. But you have a healthy dose of something else uh, that I'd call gumption. <laughs> and that's a process of giving yourself permission. And you didn't give yourself permission when you were in college. Right. You finally did before you graduated from college. Is the genie out of the bottle now? It is. Are completely. you going to continue <laughs> to have gumption? And in, in, in what would you recommend to others that are on the kind of precipice of making the decision to go all in on entrepreneurship? That's a great question. So. I tell my, uh, my partners when I bring them into any venture that I'm involved in is on the early stages, in the early stages when I see an opportunity, it haunts me, right? It haunts me until I do something with it. And literally, it will keep me up at 2 a.m. It will wake me up. I'll stop it at cocktail parties and write notes down in a notebook uh, or send a quick text to remind myself or something. When something captivates you like that, you have a choice to either ignore it, and it's very hard to ignore it, or you continue it, uh, pursue it and see where it goes. And that has always been a key decision point for me, is am I captivated enough by this one opportunity, regardless of how sexy or not sexy it is, will I hate myself if I don't <laughs> pursue it and see where it goes, if I don't pull this thread? And that's been one of the things that has worked out really well for me is, being able to make that decision early on and continually throughout the process because it, this is absolutely a, an iterative process. You fail, you learn from it, you go back, you revise your plan, you see what externalities factored into it and you try to uh, reconfigure and reposition and continue your work. Um, so you continually have to ask yourself, um, is this still something that captivates me that's so important to me and to the world, most importantly, and to the customers that I'm about to serve, that I need to continue this? And that just gives you the energy to continue to go forward. Doug, you've been a champion of our ecosystem. I just want to thank you so much for joining us on the heels of innovation, sharing your experience as an entrepreneur, as part of the Carolina family. and. Thank you very much for sharing your story. It's been my pleasure, Ted. Thank you for the invitation.